uh, come to this passage in Isaiah 52. Would you take your Bibles and turn there, please? Isaiah 52, 13 into chapter 53. We're going to be looking at that this morning. And I'm not going to read it at the beginning. I'm going to refer to it as we go along. So it would be helpful if you had a Bible open. If you don't have one with you, there are some under the chairs where you are sitting that you could use to follow along. As I was thinking about this text this morning, I was thinking, are you ready for another adventure as we work our way through these chapters in Isaiah? Uh, if you've been part of this series, you know how amazing this book is and how powerfully God is speaking. And I've really enjoyed the messages that Pastor Jason has shared with us too as he shares his life situation with us and preaches from the text and you see the connections there and it relates to things that all of us are dealing with. And today we are going to look at just a truly amazing passage, Isaiah 53. Let me pray for us as we begin. Father, as we come to your holy word, we thank you for it. It is powerful. It speaks to our needs. It points us to the Savior, Jesus. It addresses the human condition, what we need. We need a Savior. And so, Father, I pray that as we walk through this text this morning, that by your Holy Spirit, you would speak through me and you would speak to the hearts of all who are here. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today we are looking at a passage that I think is even more amazing than the prophecy about Cyrus. This text is called the Suffering Servant Passage. It is about the Messiah, about his character and work, and it points so clearly to Jesus. In fact, in the New Testament, there are over 80 references to this particular chapter as you hear it in the Gospels and in the Epistles, and they talk about the things that are mentioned here. As one commentator said, the only thing missing from this text would be if God had put the name Jesus right there in the middle of it. It is just so clear about who he is and what he would do for us. But the question that Isaiah was wrestling with is this. How can a holy God forgive our sins and still be just? How can a holy God Forgive our sins and still be just. You know, I think that people today don't even think about that question. They'd be going, I mean, well, why wouldn't he forgive us? I mean, isn't that what God's supposed to do? Or they think that, well, I'm not such a bad person. I mean, uh, I love my spouse or I go, my, go to work, I do my job, I pay my taxes, you know. I, I'm a good guy. Why wouldn't he forgive me? Why wouldn't he let me into his kingdom? And they would justify their sins by saying, well, you know, I like to have a little fun once in a while too. I mean, and I've made some mistakes and doesn't everyone? And all that that shows is how far removed we are from our understanding of the absolute holiness of God and the seriousness of sin. How can a holy God forgive our sins and still be just? That's a miracle. And the answer in a word is grace. It is all because of God's grace. God will do it. And God will provide a way. That's what this passage teaches us. This passage is actually a poem. 
It is a beautiful poem with five stanzas, and each stanza has three verses in it. There's a symmetry to it that we will see as we go through it. And it begins with the servant's introduction in chapter 52, verses 13 to 15. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. And just as there were many who were appalled at him, so his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man, and his form marred beyond human likeness, so will he sprinkle many nations, and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told they will see, and what they have not understood, they, what they have not heard they will understand. Behold my servant. He will act wisely. And what that means is that he will accomplish his mission. He will accomplish everything that God has sent him to do. He will triumph. This verse stands like a banner at the beginning of this chapter, and it's saying that, listen, you're going to read some hard things here. It's not going to look good for the Messiah. He's going to suffer. He is going to be humiliated and put to death. But I want you to know this at the beginning. My servant wins. And it says that he will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. It is a reference to his resurrection and his ascension and his exaltation in heaven. It is like watching a movie on the life of Christ, like the movie Jesus. And I know how it ends, and it ends with the resurrection, and there's good news there. But it's still hard to watch the crucifixion and to see all that Jesus had to go through for us. Isaiah describes the reaction of the people who were appalled at him when they saw Jesus and they saw his bruised and bloodied body hanging on a cross. His appearance was so disfigured. That same term disfigured is used of a blemished animal when it was unfit even to be offered as a sacrifice. And here the Son of God is described as this man who hung on a cross that was so bloodied, so disfigured, he was hardly recognizable. I think in the movie The Passion, and I think how hard that was to watch, and to be honest, it didn't go far enough. Jesus was beaten with rods and fists. His back was ripped open by leather whips. A crown of thorns was placed on his head. He was forced to carry a heavy crossbeam through the streets of Jerusalem to Golgotha. He would collapse under the weight of that after all that he had suffered. Nails would be driven through his hands and feet. It was excruciating. The pain was unbearable. And then he was hung on a cross to die, a slow and agonizing death and humiliation and shame. But this would be the means by which God will save all who will believe in him. And the day will come when kings will shut their mouths because they will see and understand who this servant is, that he is the king of all kings and the Lord of all lords. And they will say, oh God, what have we done? We killed your son. 
In the book of Revelation, chapter 1, verse 7, John quotes Zechariah, and he says, Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. Behold my servant. Behold the one who suffered and died for you. In the second stanza, he talks about the servant's rejection. Verses 1 to 3. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Who has believed our message? We didn't know. We didn't understand. He grew up like a tender shoot, like a plant in dry ground. There was nothing outstanding about his appearance or physique. He wasn't born in a palace. He didn't wear the robes of royalty. There wasn't anything from a human standpoint to call attention to him. In fact, we read these statements in the Gospels where people would say, isn't he the carpenter's son? And where did he get his learning? Where did he go to school? How did he know so much? His family, his brothers, didn't even believe in him at the start of his ministry. They would say to him, well, Jesus, if you want to be famous, why don't you go down to Jerusalem? I mean, you should do that. Make yourself known if this is who you think you are. And Jesus would say, my time has not yet come. Nathaniel, when he heard that Jesus was from Nazareth, said, Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? And even John the Baptist, when he was in prison, had doubts. And he would send one of his disciples to Jesus and say, Are you the one? Or should we look for another? Jesus wasn't what they expected. They expected a king who would crush their enemies, who would restore Israel to prominence. He would defeat all their foes. And what they saw instead was a teacher, a man who identified with people in their suffering, a man of sorrows. But it wasn't his sorrows. It was our sorrows that he bore. He was despised and rejected by men. The word despised in Hebrew is not as negative as our English word. It doesn't mean that they were disgusted with him. It's more that they were just indifferent to him. I mean, he wasn't that significant. He wasn't worthy of attention. That's the way that they looked at Jesus. Herod, Pilate, Caesar, Annas, Caiaphas, those were the movers and shakers. Those were the people you wanted to know if you were going to get someplace in this world. This Jesus, he's a nobody. Why would you follow him? Oh, how easy it is to judge by outward appearances. A number of years ago, in January of 2007, a man named Joshua Bell 
was part of an interesting experiment in Washington, D.C. Joshua Bell is a master violinist, and he was asked by the Washington Post to just dress up in ordinary clothes like you're a common street musician and play some music on the street, and we're going to see what people do. And so here's Joshua Bell. One day he emerges from the metro in D.C. He positions himself against the wall by a trash basket. He sets his case out there, opens it up, takes out his violin, you know, and he throws a few dollars and some pocket change in the case as a little seed money to see if other people might do the same. And then he began to play. And he played Mozart, he played Schubert, and more than a thousand people streamed by that day hardly taking notice. If they had paid attention, they might have recognized this young man as the world-renowned violinist he is. They also might have noticed that the violin he played was a rare Stradivarius worth over $3 million. It was all an experiment to see if anyone would stop to appreciate the beauty in that ordinary place or if they would recognize who he is. Just three days earlier, Joshua Bell had sold out Boston Symphony Hall with ordinary seats going for $100 and more per seat. But in the subway that day, he garnered about $32 from 27 people who stopped long enough to throw in a little change. They didn't know who he was. And the same can be said of Jesus. Jesus came and he looked so ordinary that we didn't recognize him. In the third stanza, we have the servant's atonement explained. Look at verses four to six. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. And we all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He died for our sins. And speaking for Israel... Isaiah says that we didn't understand. I mean, we thought he was a madman or a blasphemer or worse. We thought he was stricken by God, that he was being punished for his own sins. We even quoted the scripture that says, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Surely this Jesus must have done something so horrible to be punished in this way. We didn't realize that he hung there for me. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. This passage of Scripture is one of the clearest statements in the Bible on substitutionary atonement and what that means. And Isaiah didn't want us to miss it. I mean, if we knew Hebrew well, I need to have people help me in pointing this out too. But if you look at chapters 40 to 66, this is the middle chapter. This is the peak of the mountain, if you will. And that's intentional. 
calling attention to how important this particular chapter is. And if you look at the middle stanza of this poem, it is verses four to six. It's the apex. It's the peak of the peaks, if you will, that we are looking at. This is the most important part of the text. And what it speaks about is what Jesus will do for us when he dies on that cross as a substitute for our sins. You see, the only way that God can forgive our sins and still be just is that someone had to pay the debt that we owed. God's holiness was offended by our sin. God's justice demanded that a payment be paid, and we could not do that because of our sin. Someone would need to take our place. That is what the whole sacrificial system was about. The only way that we could be restored to a relationship with a holy God is that someone would need to die in our place. A substitute would need to be provided. But could a sheep die for a man? No. Could a goat die for a man? No. No animal could take our place. All of those sacrifices were temporary, provisional, pointing ahead to what would come. John Oswald wrote in his commentary on this passage, he said, a lamb cannot die in a human's place, but a perfect human could. And if that human is also God, he could die for every human's sin. That is what Jesus did. That's why John the Baptist would say of Jesus, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And it's why the Apostle Paul would write in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, that God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This great exchange took place on the cross. And when we place our faith in Jesus as our Savior and Lord, he takes our sin and places it upon the innocent one, Jesus, who pays the penalty that we deserve. And not only that, he takes Jesus' righteousness and places that upon us, the sinner, so that when God looks at us, he doesn't see our sin, but he sees the righteousness of his Son, Jesus Christ. That's grace. That's God's riches at Christ's expense. And fourthly, he tells us of the servant's innocence in verses 7 to 9. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living, for the transgression of my people he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence nor was any deceit in his mouth. Jesus willingly laid down his life for us. He went to the cross like a lamb to slaughter. He was not overpowered. He chose not to fight back. And when he hung on the cross, he didn't scream at his tormentors. He didn't blaspheme God. He didn't curse God. Instead, he said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. 
And after crying out, it is finished, he said, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. Who dies like that? Who says those kind of things when they are being crucified? No wonder the Roman centurion who was standing there said, surely this was a righteous man. Surely he is the Son of God. By oppression and judgment, he was led away. His trial was illegal. It was done in haste, at night, with false witnesses who were brought before him. He committed no crime, yet he was sentenced to death. He was assigned a grave with the wicked. There he was, hanging on a cross between two thieves who were crucified with him. And yet he was buried with the rich, buried in a rich man's tomb as Joseph of Arimathea would come and ask for the body of Jesus to give it a proper burial. Though he had done nothing wrong, he was innocent. C.S. Lewis pictures this so well in his book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, when Aslan, the mighty lion, surrenders himself in the place of another who has sinned. And Aslan is mocked and bound and taunted and shaved of his great mane and then put to death. All the while, at any moment, he could have snapped his cords and killed them all. Listen to how Lewis describes it as Lucy and Susan look on. The fool, the witch cried, the fool has come. Bind him fast. And Lucy and Susan held their breaths, waiting for Aslan's roar and his spring upon his enemies. But it never came. Four hags grinning and leering, yet also at first hanging back and half afraid of what they had to do, had approached him. Bind him, I say, repeated the white witch. The hags made a dart at him and shrieked with triumph when they found that he made no resistance at all. And then others, evil dwarves and apes, rushed in to help them, and between them they rolled the huge lion over on his back and tied all his four paws together, shouting and cheering as if they had done something brave. Though had the lion chosen, one of those paws could have been the death of them all. But he made no noise. Even when the enemy, straining and tugging, pulled the cords so tight that they cut into his flesh. And then they began to drag him toward the stone table. Stop, said the witch. Let him first be shaved. Another roar of mean laughter went up from her followers as an ogre with a pair of shears came forward and squatted down by Aslan's head. Snip, snip, snip went the shears and the masses of curling gold began to fall to the ground. And then the ogre stood back, and the children watching from their hiding place could see the face of Aslan, looking all small and different without its mane. The enemies also saw the difference. Why, he's only a great cat after all, cried one. Is that what we were afraid of, said another? And they surged around Aslan, jeered at him, saying things like, Puss, puss, poor pussy. How many mice have you caught today, cat? Would you like a saucer of milk, pussums? Oh, how can they, said Lucy, tears streaming down her cheeks. The brutes, the brutes. For now that the first shock was over, the shorn face of Aslan looked to her braver and more beautiful and more patient than ever.
Behold my servant. In the fifth stanza, Isaiah tells us of the servant's victory. He would win this victory not by crushing his enemies, but by his suffering and death and surrender to the will of the Father. Look at verses 10 to 12. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. And after the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. And by his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great and he will divide the spoils with the strong because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Jesus' death was by the will of God. There was no other way that we could be cleansed of our sin. And because of what Jesus has done, he will see his offspring, all who will believe in him, all who will become part of this family of God. He will prosper. He will rise again. He will see the light of life, Isaiah tells us. And by the knowledge of him, my servant will justify the many. It is only by placing our trust in him as our Savior and Lord that we can be saved. There is no other way. And because of what Jesus has done, God says, I will give him a portion among the great. He will be exalted to the highest place. He will be given a name that is above every other name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he alone is Lord to the glory of God the Father. His death brings life. His offering is complete. It is once for all paid in full. You know, this passage of Isaiah speaks so powerfully about Jesus. Jesus is the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. I don't know how you can read this and not see the connections if you know the story at all. And it tells us that only by his grace can be saved. Only by placing our trust in him as our Savior and Lord can we be restored to a relationship with God. Let's pray. Father, as we come before you today, thank you for this chapter that tells us about Jesus and what he did for us. We stand in amazement that it was written 700 years before Jesus was even born. And yet it is so descriptive, line by line by line. Jesus, thank you that you were willing to go to the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. Thank you that you have invited us to be part of your family. And I pray that if there's anyone here listening today who has not made that commitment to Jesus as your Savior and Lord, that you would open your heart to him today. Ask him to forgive you your sins. Ask him to come into your life and be your Savior and Lord, and he will do that. And you could begin a new relationship with him this very moment. Trust in Christ today. Jesus, thank you for what you have done for us. Amen. Today we are going to 
close this service with a video that I want you to see that is very powerful. Uh, it is, uh, the setting is in Jerusalem. It is in Hebrew. So you're going to have to read the subtitles and follow along with what's being said. But it is about Isaiah 53, which is called the forbidden chapter in many Jewish synagogues today. Take a look. פרק אחד בתוך הספר הזה, שבעצם היו מכירים אותו בבתי הכנסת בעבר, ואז הרבנים החליטו להוציא את זה מההפטרה. היום זה נחשב הפרק האסור. האם שמעת על זה עוד פעם? לא שמעתי על זה. האם את רוצה לראות מה נסתר בפרק הזה? יש לך את זה? יש לי פה בתנ"ך. אני רוצה לדעת כמה שוטר הזה, האמת בעצם בגלל זה אנחנו עושים את התוכנית הזאת, כי רוב האנשים לא קראו את הפרק הזה בכלל, כי לא, לא קוראים את זה עוד בבתי הכנסת. הפרק הוא ישעיהו נ"ג, נבואה מאוד חשובה על מי המשיח יהיה, ולמשך 1,700 שנים, מאז שהוא כתב את זה, כמעט כל הרבנים וחז"ל האמינו שזה פרק שמדבר על המשיח. בעצם גם בתלמוד, בסנהדרין צדיק ח', גם ילקוט שמעוני, הזוהר, הרמב״ם, האמינו שהפרק הזה מדבר על המשיח. אז עכשיו אנחנו מגיעים לקטע הכי כיפי, שאנחנו נקרא כמה קטעים מאותו פרק ונראה על מה זה מדבר. זה וחדל אישים, איש מחובות, וידו החולי, וכמסתר פנים ממנו, נבזה, ולא חשבנו הוא. הוא היה בזוי ודחוי על ידי בני אדם, איש שידע כאבים ומחלות, הוא היה כמו אדם שמסתירים ממנו את הפנים, בזוי וחסר ערך בעיניהם. שזה מדבר העניין הזה על, על המשיח. חזק מאוד. אדם שכמו שכתוב בזוי ודחוי על ידי החרפה. העם שלנו היה משוכנע שהוא שלילי. לא יודע למה. לא קיבלו אותו. דחו אותו. לא חשבנו שהוא היה המשיח. כל אויינו הוא נשא ומכאובנו סבלה. ואנחנו חשבנו הוא נגוע. הוא כאלוהים מעונה. לכן הוא נשא את המחלות שלנו, סבל את הכאבים שלנו, ואנחנו התייחסנו אליו כמו אל חולה במחלה קשה, שאלוהים גרם לו להיות מושפל ומעונה. הוא לקח את כל הכאב, את כל הסבל ואת כל המחלות עליו. ובכל זאת, יענו, דחו אותו. הוא עשה לנו טוב ובעצם נתנו לו רע בחזרה. הוא סובל בגללנו, בגלל כל ה... בעצם העבירות שאנחנו עושים, אז הוא סובל את הכאב הזה. הוא נתן לנו מעצמו, הוא סבל בשבילנו, הוא לקח את המחלות שלנו, את כל החטאים שלנו. מעוצר וממשפט, לוקח את דורו, מי ישוחח, כי נגזר מארץ חיים, מפשע עמי, נגע למו. ויתן את רשעים קברו, ואת עשיר במותיו, הלא חמס עשה, ולא מרמה בפיו. בפסוק 12 כתוב, תחת אשר הארה למוות נפשו. מה התוצאה של הסבל שלו בסופו של דבר? הוא מת. הוא ימות. עם עשירים. איזה כיף. אני גם רוצה. אז קיצר האשימו אותו על דברים שהוא לא עשה, וקיבל על זה. מעניין. הוא מת, אבל לא מוות עם כבוד. קודם כל, האם זה משהו ששמעת על המשיח, שכל הדברים האלה אמורים לקרות לו? לא. זה לא. 
יש גם את התיאור הזה, לא רק בפסוקים אלה, אבל גם בסחריה, בדניאל, במקומות אחרים. וגם הרבנים העתיקים הבינו שהמשיח אמור לסבול. והוא מחולל מפשענו, מדוכא מעוונותינו, מוסר שלומנו עליו ובחבורתו נרפא לנו. כולנו כצאן טעינו, איש לדרכו פנינו, והשם הפגיע בו את עוון כולנו. אבל הוא נפצע בגלל הפשעים שלנו, בגלל החטאים שלנו, הוא הושפע, נענש כדי שלנו יהיה שלום, בזכות הפצע שלו נרפאנו. כולנו עבדנו כמו צאן, כל אחד מאיתנו פנה לדרכו, אבל אדוני הטיל את האחריות על החטאים של כולנו. הבנתי, על פי הפסוקים, כאילו, הוא, הוא יספוג את החולי והרוע שלנו, וזה ירפא אותנו, והוא בעצם יהיה בן אדם שנענש. שהוא ייקח על עצמו את כל ה... אוקיי. ייקח את כל העוונות שלנו, ואת כל המכאובים, ואת כל מה שעברנו. הוא לקח על עצמו את הכל. שכל החטאים, וכל הדברים הרעים, וכל העונש הכבד, אלוהים כאילו הכניס את זה באדם אחד. אז על כל אחד מאיתנו לשאול, האם יש בי חטא? האם אי פעם גנבת משהו? אפילו משהו קטן, או משהו להוריד משהו מהאינטרנט שלא שייך לך? מי לא? למשל, האם אי פעם שיקרת? כן. בוודאי, כל אחד משקר. גם אני, אני לא זכאי בזה. האם אי פעם חמדת? כן. ברור, אני חוטא גדול. וגם לפי התנ"ך, כל המחשבות וגישות הרעות שלנו, כמו אנוכיות, או הגאווה, או כל הדברים כאלה, הם גם נחשבים לחטא. אז אם למשל אנחנו היינו מקרינים כל המחשבות שלך על מסך, וכולם שמכיר אותך היו רואים אותם, היית רואה רק מחשבות טובות שם, או גם כמה לא טובות? גם וגם, גם וגם, כן. קודם כל, ברור שתראה גם מחשבות לא טובות, אז כל האנשים, גם הצדיק שבצדיקים, יהיה להם מחשבות רעות בראש. אבל היו לפעמים מחשבות שהייתי אומרת, אם היא הייתה נעלמת זה היה טוב. אלוהים הוא קדוש וטהור לגמרי, והוא לא יכול להיות בנוכחות של חטא. אז זה בעצם, החטא שלנו מפריד אותנו. ממנו, ומגיע לנו בסופו של דבר גם עונש. כתוב ביחזקאל ה-18, פסוק 4, שהעונש שמגיע לנו זה, זה מוות. בסופו של דבר, הפרדה מאלוהים לנצח, כי... לא הייתי רוצה. <laughs> אז בסוף אתה חושב שאתה צריך סליחה וכפרה על החטאים שלך, או, או לא? כן, מאה אחוז. גם, גם אני, גם כולם בעצם, אין, אין מישהו שלא. אבל יש גם חדשות טובות, כי אלוהים הוא, הוא לא רק שופט, הוא גם אבא שאוהב אותנו. ולכן הוא נתן בתורה את המערכת הקורבנות. הקורבן היה לוקח על עצמו את החטאים של אותו בן אדם. כתוב שהקורבנות יפסקו, ושבמקום הקורבנות שהיו, אלוהים ישלח בן אדם שיקרא המשיח. שיקח על עצמו את כל החטאים. וזה זה מה שקראנו עכשיו, אלוהים נתן לנו בתנ״ך תיאור מאוד ספציפי של מי, מי המשיח יהיה כדי שנזהה אותו ולא נפספס אותו. וכמובן זה מאוד קריטי שנדע מי הוא הבן אדם הזה, כי בלעדיו אין לנו את הכפרה והסליחה כדי שהוא ייקח את החטאים שלנו. כתוב בדניאל פרק ט' שהוא חייב לבוא לפני חורבן בית המקדש השני. אז בעצם זה היה בשבעים לספירה. אז המשיח היה חייב לבוא לפני זה, לפי התנ״ך. כתוב גם במיכה ה' שהמשיח הזה ייוולד בבית לחם. 
וגם כתוב בישעיהו, מה שקראנו עכשיו, ישעיהו נ"ג, שהעם שלנו נדחה אותו בהתחלה, ושהוא יסבול וימות. וכתוב בפסוקים אחרי זה, אחרי שהוא ימות הוא יקום אה, אה, לתחייה ו, ואז כתוב שגויים רבים יקבלו אה, אותו ו, והם יכירו את אלוהי ישראל בגללו. אז עכשיו, מהתיאורים הללו, מהתנ״ך, יש מישהו בהיסטוריה שהגשים את הדברים האלה? אני אה, לא יודעת. לא, לי לא ידוע. לך ידוע? יש מישהו שהגשים את זה? לא. לא שאני חושב, יכול להיות שיש, ותגיד לי עכשיו, אני אגיד לו, כן, אבל עכשיו לא עולה לי לראש. אממ... ישו. שמע, שוב אני חייב להזכיר שאני לא מאמין בזה בכלל, אבל לפי הסיפורים וכל מה ששמעתי, כן, זה מתאים לישוע. עשו ממנו איש קטן לאיש גדול, שהוא בעצם כן עשה מעשים טובים, והוציאו אותו בדיוק ההפך. תראה, אני מאמין שישוע... שבא לפני חורבן בית המקדש, שהוא הגשים את אלה בדיוק. הוא בא לפני שבעים לספירה, הוא נולד בבית לחם, שהעם שלנו דחה אותו, הוא סבל ומת, והוא קם לתחייה. היו חמש מאות אנשים יהודים שראו אותו חי אחרי שהוא מת, והם כתבו עליו, וגם כמובן הגויים קיבלו אותו בכאילו מיליארדים, והמשיח אמר, אני אקח את זה על עצמי, אני, כל הסבל והעונש שהיה מגיע לכם. אני אקח את זה uh, על עצמי. אבל כדי לקבל את זה, אנחנו חייבים לעשות מה שהיו עושים אז. מתוודים על החטאים, מצטערים עליהם, להתחייב לא לעשות אותם עוד, וגם להאמין ולהעביר את החטאים שלנו uh, עליו. רק אם אנחנו נאמין באותו משיח ו- ונקבל אותו, אז... אז הוא יקבל את כל, כל החטא שלנו אה, על עצמו. לא נראה לי ששמעתי את הדברים האלה בגלל שהנושא מגיע לישו. כבר אה, יש כזה מחסום שלא רוצים אפילו לחשוב על זה. לא, לא רוצים אה, לפתוח את הראש, להיות... אה, באמת, להביא לזה מחשבה קצת. אז אה, לא יודע, מסתכלים עליו כאילו... כן, כמו שכתוב בפסוק הזה, שדחו אותו. someone tells them and that's our role to go and tell to share the good news with those that we meet every day would you stand for our benediction as we close our service and now to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priest to serve his God and Father to him be glory and power forever and ever and all God's people said, Amen.